Okay, hello everybody and welcome to this next meeting of the Aristotelian Society. Thank you all very much for coming. Um, we're extremely lucky this evening to have with us Alex Douglas, um, who's come all the way from the University of St Andrews, right up there in the north, uh, kind of fighting floods um, on the way. Um, the railway lines were looking very dodgy as I came down this morning, so uh, I think he's done very well to get here. Um, Alex is interested in early modern rationalism and especially um, the work of Spinoza. Um, he has also uh, managed to achieve what I think is a remarkable feat of bringing out two books on entirely different topics in the same year, uh, both in 2015. Um, Alex uh, brought out his book on um, Spinoza and Dutch Cartesianism on the one hand, but then also produced a book on the philosophy of debt in the same year, which I think is absolutely remarkable achievement. Um, I have trouble bringing out more than one book in a decade, uh, so, uh, so I'm especially impressed by, by that achievement. Um, and tonight's talk is going to be entitled, and I have, I'm very worried about the pronunciation of this word, I've been practicing it, but I think I still might get it wrong, Spinoza's Unquiet Acquiescentia. Is that it? Yes. Right. Thank, thank you so much. Um, thank you for the introduction, Helen, and for um, the invitation here, and to Guy and Holly and everyone else who's been involved in the process, and to all of you for coming. I, um, let's see, is that the right time? Something? More or less. More or less? Okay, good. I'll keep an eye on that then. Um, so, I want to talk about this notion in Spinoza of uh, acquiescentia. Um, that's perfect pronunciation. I don't, I, I, the, the reason I uh, forced you to have to pronounce a Latin word rather than translating it is because it's very difficult to translate accurately. In part four of his great work, The Ethics, uh, published posthumously in 1677, Spinoza says that acquiescentia in se ipso, acquiescence in yourself, is the highest thing that we can hope for. And um, as Claire Carlyle and Don Rutherford and many other people who've written about this concept agree, this is attached to Spinoza's idea of beatitude or salvation. Um, Beatitude doesn't have to be a religious notion. In the Latin edition of Aristotle that Spinoza probably read, Beatitudo in Latin is a translation for what Aristotle calls eudaimonia. But um, what I'm going to talk about tonight is part of a longer project. I, I want to write a book about the concept of Beatitude in Spinoza. I think that there, there are some religious elements to the notion. But this acquiescentia idea, acquiescence in yourself, Claire Carlyle points out that it contains the word quies, which is, uh, in Latin means various things, including quiet, stillness, rest, 
And you might think that as an ethical ideal, as the highest thing we can hope for, this is problematically quietist. You might think that it's a self-satisfied ethos. In fact, Edwin Curley translates acquiescentia in Seipsa as um, self-satisfaction, which is an odd translation to me because it sounds almost pejorative. Uh, generally, you know, somebody has a self-satisfied grin or something. It's not a, a compliment to say that. Um, George Eliot uh, uh, translates it as self-contentment, I think. Um, that's a plug for Claire Kylal's new edition of George Eliot's translation of Spinoza. Just definitely worth looking at if you're interested in that sort of thing. Self-contentment, self-satisfaction, all the same, you might think, it doesn't seem like a very lofty ethical ideal to just acquiesce in yourself. It almost sounds like the kind of parodic mindfulness stuff that we're told, that you just accept how, you know, what sort of ethical goal is that? You just accept what you are, and then you're finished. You don't have to strive for anything. You don't have to aspire to anything. So that's the first sense in which it might seem problematically quietist. And the other is that politically, it seems you're not engaged at all. If your ethical goal is just to find contentment in yourself, well, you know, even if you become a very admirable character yourself, shouldn't you continue to be dissatisfied by the state of the world, the suffering of others, the injustices that you see around you? How could you have achieved everything you hope for, to have achieved your, your highest hope, as long as you're okay with yourself? So in response to these concerns, I want to point out, first of all, that acquiescence in yourself is an incredibly challenging ethical goal, as Spinoza conceives it. It's not at all equivalent to the, the sort of cheap mindfulness project, the mech mindfulness project, if you like, of just accepting who you are right now, um, giving up on any ambition for change or development. And in response to the second, there's something, in fact, politically radical, deeply politically radical, about this goal of acquiescentia. Um, Spinoza doesn't necessarily emphasize the, the political radicalness of it, but I think if you look at how he understands the example of Jesus, for example, in his political, his theological political work, you can uh, see how this goal doesn't involve disengagement with the world at all. On the contrary, it is in itself a political engagement to pursue this. So on the first point, um, Spinoza, in the third part of the ethics, says that everything, every individual in nature, including ourselves, strives to persevere in its being. Strives to persevere in its being, in suo esse, he says. And I think that its, the suo, is important there because... This isn't just an inertial principle. I think there's basically a scholarly consensus now that Spinoza is not talking about uh, something like a conservation law of physics, that things strive to remain at rest, you know, until interfered with, they just don't do it. You might feel when you wake up on a Monday morning or something that you strive to remain in the same state that you're in, but it doesn't seem like this is what he means when he says, when he applies this principle to us, that we strive to persevere in our being. Rather, 
he thinks that each of us has a being which we don't already possess, that we strive towards. There's a being that's particular to you, and yet you don't already exemplify. And what you, what you strive to do is to, is to exemplify that being. Um, so, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think of, of the, the easiest way to communicate this. The, I, and I think probably that the, the easiest way to communicate it, even if it, it involves uh, loading Spinoza up with a type of metaphysics you might be uncomfortable loading him up with, is to say that he's, in the back of his mind, is something like a traditional Aristotelian distinction between potential being and actual being. So what you have is this actual being, and what you strive after is a potential being. That you, there's something you exist as potentially. Um, sorry, I have to look at my quotations here. In um, a work by Johannes Klauberg, who was a, a Cartesian philosopher working alongside Descartes in the Dutch Republic, um, I'm foolhardily embarking on uh, a translation of his logic textbook, the Logica Vetus et Nova. And in there, I notice he defines essence and existence in this way. He says, what is called essence or nature is that by which a thing is, that by which a thing is and is what it is. Of essence, we ask the question, what is it? Existence is that by which an actual being or a thing itself exists as a rose in summer, his example. But a rose in winter is called a potential being or a power because it can be. The question, is it, says Klauberg, concerns existence, which is posterior to the question, what is it? So here you have Klauberg explicitly expressing the principle that essence precedes existence, the thing that Sartre and others uh, reversed to arrive at their existentialist theory. Klauberg says, no, the question of what something is is prior to the question of whether something is. I can't ask whether something is unless I first specify what it is whose existence I'm inquiring into. Now Spinoza, because he says each thing strives to persevere in its being, he says that human desire, desire is this very striving, striving to persevere in your being, plus consciousness of it. So you're conscious of a striving to persevere in your being. And to be conscious of that striving, it seems to me, you'd have to have some idea of what it is that you're striving to be, what your being, your essential being is. Because the question of what something is is prior to the question of whether it is. So if you're striving to be, the, the prior question is what is it that you're striving to be? And knowing this seems to be very difficult. Um, how do you arrive at consciousness of not your actual being, your current state of being, but the being that you lack. Desire for Spinoza is metaphysical in the sense that René Girard uses the term metaphysical desire. Our fundamental desire is not to have something, but to be something. And in fact, all our desires to have things are just effects, secondary effects of this fundamental desire to be something. Now, how does that work for Spinoza? 
how does a fundamental desire just to be a certain type of thing end up being desire to possess things? Spinoza often talks about how immoderate people's desires for possessions are. Well, one way that you might try to work out what it is that you're striving to be is to look around you for exemplars. When you use your senses, you depend on the encounters you have with other beings who you perceive to be similar to yourself, and you think they exemplify the kind of being that you should be striving after. You look at people who look like successful examples of a human life, and you strive to emulate those lives. So you want to have what they have. You want to think what they think. You want to love what they love. You want to hate what they hate. You end up with what Spinoza calls emulation, which he says is the desire for a thing which is generated in us from the fact that we imagine others like us to have the same desire. Why would we desire something just because we think somebody else desires it? It's not straightforwardly obvious. Well, for Spinoza, the reason is, I think, because we have this fundamental insecurity of what it is that we're striving to be. And we look to other people as exemplars. Because we're striving to be like them, we strive to desire like them. We strive to want the things that they want. And then, um, going along with that, we also strive that other people love the things that we love, hate the things that we hate desire the things that we desire. And that, I think, comes from the same insecurity. It comes from this, this question that we all have of what it is that we're striving to be, which we answer by looking around us for exemplars. So to be confirmed that your desire really is your desire, that you ought to be wanting the things that you're wanting, you ought to be pursuing the hobbies that you're pursuing, you ought to be loving the other people that you love, you want other people to, to share in these as confirmation. Um, Yves Citon writes, uh, Spinoza signals with this proposition about ambition, that everybody strives that others should love what they love and hate what they hate. With that, Spinoza signals that the imitation of the affects is not only the cause of the harmonization of their desires and their inter-individual comportments, this is my not very good translation, I'm sorry. It is also equally the cause of the incremental consolidation of the affects experienced by each individual. Put otherwise, and this is the important part, I cannot affirm my desire, my in quotations, scare quotes, except to the extent that it is affirmed in me by the confirmation received from the desires I imagine in others. To sustain my own desires, I need to see other people sharing in them. Which is why it bothers us so much when you know, you see a great film, you think this is a fantastic film, and somebody else says, yeah, I didn't really. It did nothing for me, right? You don't just sort of walk away from that situation. It troubles you. Why does it trouble you? Partly because we have this, this uh, fundamental desire to be something, and combined with a deep insecurity about whether the thing that we think that we're striving to be is really the thing that we're striving to be, our, our true essence our real potential self. I mean, I, I can say more. I have this quotation from, from Kierkegaard, which I think is on point here, which is about the insecurity that we feel from this, this desire for a self, you know, desire for, for, for being in our own particular way. He says that the, the self wants in its despair to savour to the full satisfaction of making itself into itself 
And yet what it understands itself to be is in the final instance a riddle. Just when it seems on the point of having the building finished, at a whim it can dissolve the whole thing into nothing. Because you can always change your mind about what it is that you're, you're, you are essentially, what your essential being is, you end up with this continuous insecurity, whereas other people seem to always be settled. I mean, they're, of course, going through exactly the same thing, but it doesn't always look that way. It looks like other people, you know, they're, they're just being what they are. So you look, you look to these confident-seeming examples and try to emulate them. Well, if you try to answer the question that way, the sort of riddle of your being in that way, by looking to other people for examples, this can be deeply socially damaging for Spinoza. It leads almost inevitably, in fact, I think I can say it leads inevitably for Spinoza to what he calls empty glory, gloria vana, or vain glory, if you want to use the more archaic term. It's a Hobbesian term. It's a term that George Eliot uses to translate gloria vana. And he says this, what is called vain glory is acquiescentia in se ipso, that is nurtured only by the opinion of the crowd. That's how I translate opinione vulgi. Um, I think Curley translates that, that as public opinion. But I think the crowd, the, the, the feature of the crowd is very important for Spinoza. So what is called vainglory is acquiescence in yourself that's nurtured only by the opinion of the crowd. When that ceases, your acquiescence ceases. That is, the highest good, the highest thing we can hope for, acquiescence in yourself, ceases. When it happens that whoever glories in the opinion of the crowd, sorry, whence it happens, that whoever glories in the opinion of the crowd every day struggles, acts, and strives in anxious concern in order to preserve a reputation. For the crowd is various and inconstant, and thus a reputation, unless protected, quickly fades away. So we come into the world with this fundamental desire to be something, and when you look to the confirmation of others, the emulation of others to confirm your desire, your, your fundamental striving, you end up being captive to the crowd. You have to worry constantly about your reputation. Claire Carlyle writes about this, as well as making themselves anxious, people who pursue this acquiescentia become aggressively competitive with others. Indeed, those who succeed in gaining it may be the worst of all. In this struggle for acquiescentia, and now she's quoting Spinoza, the one who at last emerges as a victor exalts himself more in having harmed the other than having benefited himself. Spinoza emphasizes in this passage that it is precisely because acquiescentia is the highest thing we can hope for, the highest good that each one loves, that the false acquiescentia arising from inadequate understanding has such destructive consequences. Again, quoting Spinoza, since this struggle is over a good thought to be the highest, this gives rise to a monstrous lust of each to crush the other in any way possible. I'll say more about why that is later on. But you can sort of see the hint of the reason already. If what you pursue is the reputation, the admiration of the crowd, the crowd has a very hard time admiring more than a few people at once. Any attention they're paying to you is attention they could have been paying to me, and vice versa. So that's why this inevitably leads to conflict. When we look to be emulated, to be admired, to have a reputation among others, 
were driven into conflict with each other. And the most ferocious conflict, because what we're looking for is the highest good we can hope for, the thing that we ultimately strive after, acquiescence in ourself, you know, true, truly finding yourself. When this is your method for doing it, to look to the affirmation of others, that for Spinoza is the ultimate consequence. At the start of chapter three of his um, theological political treatise, he writes that the true happiness and beatitude of each consists only in the enjoyment of the good, not in the glory of enjoying the good exclusively and keeping out others. So he says this can't be what real beatitude is because you know, true beatitude must be something that you enjoy just for having it. It can't be something that you, you're anxious about preventing others from having. But the acquiescence that you get from glory from the admiration of the crowd is the kind of thing that you try to exclude others from having. It's a necessary condition of retaining it that you have to exclude others from it. So that way won't work. That way of pursuing acquiescence in yourself won't work or finding what it is that you're striving to be by looking to others won't work. Now, another thing that you can do, which Spinoza recommends, and I won't say too much about this, he recommends it in the preface to the fourth part of the ethics, is to rationally construct a model. You can just use your, your knowledge of uh, the laws of nature to try to construct ration, a rational sort of ideal model of what a human being should be like. He doesn't say very much about how you would do that. Um, but what you end up with then is a fiction. You don't end up with your own true essence. Um, Maura Gatins has written about this. She says that uh, a person who constructs an ideal in this way knows that the ideal is a fictional device, a mode of thought that is put to work in the service of the human endeavor to persevere in existence. In order to persevere in your being, you have to have some notion of what your being is, and you can rationally construct that, but that's just building a fiction. In that way, you're not going to identify what your true essence is. Spinoza thinks that there's a third sort of knowledge, intuitive knowledge, which he at one point says uh, proceeds from a knowledge of the essence of God to the knowledge of the essences of singular things. And in that way, by contemplating God and by somehow seeing the essences of all things in God, you can perhaps know your own essence. If that's clear to you, then feel free to take the advice. But <laughs> unfortunately, he doesn't say very much more about the procedure for arriving at knowledge of your own essence in that way. It sounds a little bit like a rationalized version of exactly what Augustine says about grace, that only God can teach you what you truly are, and that's through the illumination of grace. It's not through any ordinary type of knowledge, certainly not by observing the world, including observing others, and not by rationally constructing a model for yourself either. Given how difficult that is, Spinoza recommends just building a rational model. He says, we, we desire to have some model of human nature that we can look towards, quod intuimur. So uh, do that if you can't intuitively arrive through the contemplation of God or whatever at your knowledge of your essence. But so that's the insecurity that drives us. And it's, it's incredibly crippling and quite a dangerous sort of insecurity to be driven by. So acquiescence in yourself isn't anything like just accepting who you are and you know, 
It's, 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 it's an incredibly challenging ethical ideal. It's incredibly demanding. It's not quietistic in the sense of being easy at all. For this reason, that to pursue your own being, you have to have some sense of what your own being is. And there's no obvious way to arrive at that. And many of the ways that we try to arrive at it are, in fact, very dangerous and harmful to us. The, the, the challengingness, the demandingness of this ethical ideal, to me, is summed up in this uh, Hasidic story that Martin Buber quotes. Uh, Martin Buber, I, mean, I guess, has a version of, uh, which is the story of Rabbi Zussia saying, before his death, Rabbi Zussia said, in the coming world, they will not ask me why were you not Moses, they will ask me why were you not Zussia. That's the kind of thing that I think Spinoza thinks that we're worried about. We have this, this fear of not being ourselves. And acquiescentia in yourself is, is the removal of that fear. It's not at all straightforward to get rid of it. Not when we're honest with ourselves, I guess. Now, the idea of this being politically quietist, that was the second challenge. So you might think, okay, fine, it's a very demanding ethical ideal. Let's say you concede that, because of my irrefutable arguments. Now you worry, okay, but once you've satisfied that demand, it seems like you're a socially deficient being, because now you're, you're, you're satisfied. Maybe you've earned the self-satisfaction. It's not the pejorative sort of self-satisfaction that you just like what you happen to be. No, you've worked very, very hard to find out what it is that you essentially are and to pursue that. You've avoided all the pitfalls of ambition and emulation. But what about the rest of the world? You know, what about the rest of us? What about all of the injustice that we perpetrate upon each other, the natural evils that we succumb to, the fact that the rest of us are suffering terribly with this crippling anxiety about our fundamental being? Shouldn't this bother you? Can you really just be uh, acquiescent? You know, and again, remember the quies in acquiescent. Can you, can you be in a state of kind of pure, restful bliss about yourself while all of that is going on? And you might think that Spinoza, to some extent, suffered from that kind of detachment. In a letter that he wrote to his friend Henry Oldenburg, the head of the Royal Society, during the Second Anglo-Dutch War, so they were lamenting the, the tragic situation that their countries had gone to war. And Spinoza says, I used to worry about things like this, but now I've learned that I'm just a tiny part of nature and I can only understand bits and pieces and I can't really understand what people are doing. And he says, I now allow each one to live by his own temper and as he wishes. Indeed, they can die for their good, while I can live for the true one. So it seems quite detached. Um, the gendered pronouns, by the way, I'm, I'm just uh, following Spinoza's Latin. I don't mean to um, imply that he was only talking about men. His point is that he's happy to let people die for the true good. Right? So live and let die, as the song goes. That doesn't seem like a very noble ethical position to take. 
So you might think, is this the consequence of having adopted this highest ideal of acquiescence in himself? As, Spinoza, as long as Spinoza is, to his mind, living for the true good, he's happy to let others die for their own uh, confused ideals. Well, I don't think that is true. And I want to emphasize that acquiescence in yourself can't be detached in the way that Spinoza uh, might in this letter imply that it is. So that's something that he might say personally to Oldenburg in the course of conversation, but if you look at the implications of what his theory holds, it has to be politically radical to pursue acquiescence in yourself in this higher way, the way that most of us don't. The way that most of us pursue it is through ambition, emulation, by looking at others, by looking for confirmation from others, to do it in a different way, whatever that way is, by turning inwards and looking towards God, becomes a politically radical act. So I want to look again at what he has to say about empty glory, this bad sort of acquiescence in yourself. Um, again, he says, empty glory is acquiescence in yourself, which is nurtured only by public opinion, which seizes when public opinion seizes when your reputation seizes. He says, it's greatly fostered and supported by praise and greatly unsettled by dispraise. Therefore, when we pursue this, we are led by glory most of all and can hardly endure a life of shame. Okay, so in this way, the crowd ends up having power over you. You're, you become obsessed. You can, you can hardly endure a life of shame. So the crowd holds over you the thread of this terrible punishment that it can reduce you to a position of shame. And it leads us, as I said, into conflict with each other. Again, I'll read the passage. Indeed, because all desire to capture the applause of the crowd, one person readily puts down the reputation of another. From whence, seeing that the good contended for is judged to be supreme, that's reputation, acquiescence, by a reputation, an enormous lust arises to dominate the other in any possible way. And whoever turns out the victor glories more in having harmed the other than having profited herself. There I change the pronoun. There you go. And therefore this glory or acquiescentia is really empty, for it is nothing. So it makes sense to think, okay, if people are pursuing their reputation, the applause of the crowd, then they try to exclude others. And because it's for the highest ideal, the battle becomes ferocious. But what does Spinoza mean in saying that this glory or acquiescentia is really empty, for it is nothing? That's a strange uh, phrase. I think, from, from reading around the context, I think that what he means is that when what you're ultimately pursuing in order to affirm your sense of yourself is the admiration of others. You end up with something like the paradox in Plato's Euthyphro, where the gods love and act because it's pious, and yet for what it's, it's pious because they love it. Right? So you have this, this perfectly empty circularity. I think the same thing happens when you glory in the reputation of the crowd, the admiration of the crowd. But what do the crowd admire you for? Well, they admire you for being the sort of person that the crowd admires, right? What they're actually seeing is their own admiration reflected back at them. It's like this empty hall of mirrors 
I think that's Spinoza's point, is that when everyone's pursuing this goal of admiration, they don't know what they want to be admired for. They just want to be admired. Um, and, of course, it's incredibly perilous because the crowd that admire you, they admire you for the thing that they themselves want, for having the thing that they themselves want. So your, crowd, your throng of admirers is actually a pack of envious rivals who, who would love to take you down, who would love to replace you. What does this have to do with the, the political question? Well, I think that for Spinoza, this is the basis of political society in most cases. Um, I can't make that whole argument here. There's an interesting, relatively new uh, article or chapter in a book by Eva de Bray that makes this case. Um, she says that Spinoza, often when he talks about social conformity, he explains social conformity in terms of our fear of looking silly in front of the crowd. We do things, um, he says, the, the desire for glory is a force that binds individuals to conform to a shared set of norms and practices. Those, sorry, those are her, her words and then his words, which nobody dares defy lest he should appear mindless or stupid or something like that. So social conformity is imposed through the weaponization of this desire for glory that most of us end up with. But why do we end up with it? We end up with it because of our fundamental existential insecurity, because of our desire to be something specific without a knowledge of what it is we're striving to be. So you have this astonishing claim buried in Spinoza that the foundation of our political institutions is our insecurity. All, in, all political institutions really are bound together by our fundamental insecurity. De Bruyne makes various arguments that, you know, anything else that you might invoke is not going to answer the question. She talks about uh, Mataron. Mataron has this uh, explanation of how the crowd forms itself and becomes an enforcer of norms by, you know, more traditional means, the threat of punishments and uh, physical pain and things like this. But she says that, that the crowd would never have formed in the first place unless something was driving it to do so. And what drives it to do so is this urge that we have to conform simply because of the, the fear of being thought shameful. And that's because we've, we've staked our entire existential desire, our entire striving to persevere in being on our reputation with the crowd, on our being admired by others. She says that... It is not that the group itself arouses in us the fear of suffering the material consequences that its retribution brings, for example, physical pain. This fear rather finds its source in the ideas that we form of ourselves relative to what the multitude can make us into. The multitude, the crowd, can reduce us to, to nothing at all because our only sense of ourself has come from our reputation, which means that they can take away our being, effectively. Um, So, what happens in that case when somebody finds a way to get outside of that circle? When somebody is no longer drawn by this magnetism that brings us to conform to each other? When somebody finds a way 
to acquiesce in her own being without it depending, her sense of her own being depending on the reputation, depending on the admiration of the crowd. Well, because according to Spinoza, we are driven to imitate each other in all of these ways, imitation, emulation and ambition are always present in our strivings and our desires, as soon as one person finds some way to acquiesce that doesn't depend on the admiration of others, other people will start to imitate that person instead. And then what happens to someone whose power depends on the dynamics of the pursuit of glory, the pursuit of reputation? Suddenly they start to lose the basis of their power. If your reputation, if in fact the, the political institutions that uphold your power depend for their fundamental coherence on people's desire for reputation, desire for the applause of the crowd, as soon as people start discovering and imitating a way of acquiescing in themselves that doesn't require that, your power is to that extent weakened. The institution is to that extent weakened. I think that this is how Spinoza understands the example of Jesus. What Spinoza says about Jesus is very interesting. He's not uh, known to have officially converted to Christianity, and yet he's very interested and has a lot to say about the figure of Jesus, who he always refers to, by the way, as Christus, the Christ, the anointed one, for whatever that's worth. Probably puzzled by Spinoza's relation to Christianity, Oldenburg writes to him quite late in his life, I would happily be taught what, according to you, should be said about the teachings upon which the truth of the gospel and the Christian religion is established. And he goes on to say specifically the question of Christ's death, the passion as the ransom for our sins, and all of this. Spinoza's answer is the resurrection, resurrectionem, of Christ from death was really spiritual and was only revealed to the faithful and accepted by them in this way that Christ was given eternity and stood out among the dead. Death, he says, I interpret in the sense in which Christ said, let the dead bury their dead. As soon as he gave by his life and death an example of singular sanctity, and he raises his disciples from death insofar as they follow this example of his life and death. So notice Spinoza has completely dodged the question of the ransom for our sins. But what he wants to say is that the resurrection is very important to him. <coughs> But the resurrection, he plays on words here, resurrectionem. Um, he says that when Christ is resurrected, resurrects it, he surrects it, stood out among the crowd, stood out among others. Um, and so he says this, is, this isn't anything to do with Christ coming back from the dead in any traditional sense. What, he, what it means is that he stood out, for, he, was, he was resurrected from the dead, he stood out from the dead, and the dead are the spiritually dead. The spiritually dead are the ones who haven't actually found the way to their true selves. They can't strive to persevere in being because they have no idea what their being is. They just pursue the empty glory of reputation. Christ is an example of singular sanctity insofar as he stands outside of that process. And this is important, I think, because it's why Spinoza thinks that Christ's I'm, saying, I'm being like him and saying Christ now. Jesus's, let's be neutral. Let's be neutral on the anointment of Jesus. Jesus, uh, Jesus's death is important, not just his life. I think this is interesting because 
Spinoza, for the most part, seems to agree with the understanding that his friend Adrian Kurbach had of Jesus. And Kurbach writes that Christ's offer, office of salvation does not spring from the fact that he died for the crimes of humanity. Kurbach thinks it's just a barbaric superstition to think that by killing one person you could atone for the sins of others. But from the circumstance that he instructed the people as a teacher and sought to bring them to a knowledge of God. So you might have thought Spinoza would be inclined to agree with that. It's the, it's, he seems mostly to, to say the same. It's, it's Christ's office as a teacher, as an exemplar. But the death is important for Spinoza. Unlike for, for Kubai, the death is just an unfortunate fact. He was this great teacher. We had a lot to learn from him, and then you killed him. Um, that was a misfortune and a crime, of course. But for Spinoza, the death itself is exemplary. And I think it's exemplary because the death of Jesus shows the relation that he puts himself to the crowd by stepping outside of the, the force that binds the crowd together, this constant desire for glory, for reputation, for that, that corrupted form of acquiescence in yourself. In standing aside from it, Christ provides an alternative to people. The alternative is to acquiesce in themselves the way that he did. Spinoza says that various things that Jesus communicated to God mind to mind and things like this. Well, some people say this sounds a little bit like what he has to say about this intuitive knowledge by which we can somehow grasp our essences. We can truly intuit our essences rather than looking for them in human exemplars around us. But there's this important passage in the Tractatus Theologico-Politicus where Spinoza, although he doesn't name Jesus, seems to be, to me, to be thinking of this case. Spinoza writes, What greater evil to the Republic can be conceived of than that honest men who hold dissenting opinions and do not know how to dissimulate should be sent into exile like wrongdoers? What I ask is more pernicious than that men should be taken for enemies and led to their deaths, not because of any crime or misdeed, but because they are of liberal disposition, and that the scaffold, the terror of the wicked, should be made into a most beautiful theatre of forbearance and virtue, to shame the great. For those who know that they are honest do not fear a criminal's death, nor do they reject punishment. Their minds, indeed, are not troubled by penitence. On the contrary, they consider it an honour and not a penalty to die for a good cause. For the cause of liberty, it is glorious. What example, then, do they set, those whose cause is unknown to lazy and impotent souls, they who contemn the seditious and love the honest? Nobody can take anything from their example except to imitate it, or at least to adulate it. In attempting to make an example of Christ, who dared to defy the basis of society, who dared to defy the crowd and the forces that bind the crowd together, this hunger for admiration and glory, what they actually did was create an example to be imitated. That passage to me sounds a lot like the passage in the letter to the Colossians, that mysterious passage, right, where Christ is said to have nailed the archons and the powers to the cross and to carry them in a procession. You know, this funny reversal of the crucifixion. That no, Christ actually crucified the powers and, and paraded them around in their impotence. Because that's what's shown here, is Christ shows that you can escape the power of the crowd. You can escape the power that the crowd holds over you by finding an alternative route to acquiescence in yourself. And so for this reason, I think that 
this can't be a disengaged political idea. If you look at Christ, you know, Christ aimed for Spinoza for nothing more than to, I keep saying this, Jesus aimed for nothing more than to uh, pursue his own life of perfect sanctity, to pursue beatitude as he saw it, to pursue acquiescence in himself through spiritual means, not through attracting the emulation and envy of those around him. And for that he had to be punished because in doing that he defied the archons and the powers. Right? In doing that he removed the basis of political power that depends on people's hunger for the affirmation of the crowd. And in doing that he sets up an example, an alternative example for us to follow. So not only do I think that it's an incredibly political act for Spinoza to pursue true acquiescence in yourself, to escape from the thing that we normally do, which is to pursue vain glory. I think, in a way, it's the only truly political act. Because if you pursue other political goals, Spinoza says explicitly, every desire that we have is accompanied by ambition. You might think that you're pursuing political goals from the most noble of causes, but somewhere deep down in there is a desire for glory the desire for your reputation among others who pursue the same ends, your desire for reputation as the person who achieved this great ideal or participated in this great struggle, and then you're led to all of the same conflicts and corruptions that come along with that. But to truly stand away from the crowd, to pursue beatitude in yourself, that's a genuine defiance of the archons and the powers. That's what... I think Spinoza is promoting to us. It's neither a quietistic ideal in the sense of being easy to achieve, it's incredibly demanding, and it's the very opposite of politically disengaged. It's possibly the only way to stand outside of a kind of conformist politics. Thank you. <laughs>